welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hello, Ezra Kingpin. Uh, I feel like you really forgot to come up with something and made that up on the spot. Well, I actually came up with something in advance, then forgot it and just did that. Yeah. Well, your improv skills are improving. It's true. It's true. <laughs> From a baseline of zero. Yeah, you're at a, a solid <laughs> one right now. Have you ever done improv? Nope. Okay, me either. I feel like I'd be really terrible at it. Yeah, I almost kind of feel like every episode's improv in a way. Okay. But scripted. Scripted improv. <laughs> Scrimp, scrimpov. Yeah, nope. that's meta. See, I'm not good at it. <laughs> wow. Well, if you're tuning in for the first time, that's what you're in for. Good luck. Scripted improv. <laughs> We are Laser Graves, a podcast about the 80s. And if you are joining us again, thank you for coming back. We appreciate it. Thanks. <laughs> Was that too enthusiastic? Yeah, a little too much enthusiasm to start the show. Oh, thank you kindly. We got to ease into that okay. enthusiasm. Sorry. Don't I don't know s- how to be casual. Don't scare people away. I try to be casual and I cannot. If you do like what you hear, though, you can always find our back episodes at lasergraves.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like what you hear, feel free to join our Patreon at patreon.com slash lasergraves, where we offer all kinds of additional bonus content. And for our longtime Patreon subscribers, thank you for being so understanding. In our uh, recent episode that's coming out a little later than normal, but it's a good one. It'll be worth it. Trust me. Indeed. Okay, Mariah Rose, are you ready for this week's episode? I suppose, yeah. It's been one heck of a week. You have had such an insane work week. You're the champion of all champions. Well, I wouldn't go that far. That was all ridiculous, what you just said. Champion but I would say, of kings <laughs> of yesteryear. I will say I had plenty of moments to bow out of this week's episode, and I was super stubborn about it. I gave you so many options. I was like, let's just let's just drop an old episode, like just record a little intro. Like, hey, in case you're wondering where we came from, here's an old episode. We may do that. I don't know. No, we won't. Our listeners deserve better. So this has been an episode that we've been wanting to do for a month now. And it's such a huge topic that we just could not get the time to do it. And we kept putting it off. That's why we did just some fun movies in the meantime, trying to prep for this episode. And I just did not want to put it off another week. So... I am getting through this because I am super excited for this episode. This is not only somebody who we absolutely love, but to my knowledge, and this is shame on us, um, I think this is the first kind of biography or profile we've done on a woman for the podcast, like exclusively. Let me ask you again, though, because I I was kind of disappointed with your response. What? Are you excited about this week's episode? Yeah. Just send me to Russia and call me Babushka. Ah, yeah. (laughs) That's because this week we are covering the life and times of the extremely eccentric and incredibly awesome Kate Bush. Yeah. Kate Bush. So she might be a little divisive. No. Nobody is going to be divided. Kate Bush is a gem. And if you don't like her, you go get off of the boat. You hang on to Leonardo DiCaprio as he sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Oh, wow. Improv just went to a 1.25. No, I think that took me back. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're at 0.75. Look. Just 
strictly because you made a Titanic reference in improv. That's like a cop out. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> no, Kate Bush. What I'm saying is that I feel like there are diehard fans who get it. And mm-hmm. then I feel like there are people that go, I don't know what this is all about. Who is Kate Bush? Yeah. Yeah. Who is Kate Bush? And she's very similar to if you're going to go before her, if you're a Bowie fan, if you're going to go after her, if you're a Bjork fan, you kind of put them all in that same category of like very artsy fartsy. But, you know, their art comes first and foremost, and they don't really compromise when it comes to vision, and either you're on board or you're not. Right. And I think a lot of people get uh, frightened by the term art because they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, I have to think? Hold on. Uh, 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 uh. (laughs) I don't even, it's too much. I don't want to, you can't make me. It's okay. We'll hold your hand, we'll lead you in, and you'll, by the end, you'll be in love with Kate, or, I mean, maybe not, maybe you'll be neutral, but then you'll go listen to her music and you'll be like... Boy, she's strange, and I'm glad I know a little bit more about her. The direction I'm going in with my art is the way I want to go, because for me, it's, it's a little bit deeper. It's got more meaning. It's, um, it's not so poppy, I suppose. As much as we would love to be able to just start right now with one of her crazy weird songs to, oh, to yeah. set the stage, we can get away with using samples from really weird, bizarre cult films yeah, but sh- don't tell on Kate us. Bush is one of the most successful British artists of all time we probably can't like get away with that one so uh, sorry guys but she's all over YouTube you can go look up the songs that we mentioned in this episode mm-hmm. if you are unfamiliar with her work I wish we could do that but we just can't right now this episode though is not for people who really already know a lot about her so don't get caught up on details this is more kind of just a general appreciation like a of her work starter and, course yeah it's like a starter sample or plate and you can take it from here and learn more or if you know a little bit about her maybe you'll learn something but she's just such a bizarre character in she's... the world of pop music and somehow has navigated it on her own terms and that's why we wanted to discuss her because if there. If you know anything about Laser Graves, this is the type of artist that we would cover. Oh, we... Okay, so you know how you meet those people in your life, and you're just like, they're they're different. They're strange, they're smart, they're interesting, they're weird, um, whatever. You meet those people, and you're like, what even... What's going on here? Kate Bush is one of those people where... In in passing, like, if you grew up with her, you would have just been like, she's weird, but really so fascinating, so innovative, such a deep thinker and uh, an inspired mind that it is, it is so good for the heart to, like, the creative heart, I guess, to find a person like this and look into their life and see, first of all, that they're actually just a real human, because I think a lot of times we look at these people and go, I don't even know. They came from a different planet. Like, look at Bowie. He set himself up as, I came from a different planet. planet, And you're like, well, I can't even. But I think when you really look at their life, you go, okay, they were on a path that was a weird path, but it's, it's a real place that you could get to if you have a lot of privilege, as we will get to. But I don't know. I find that really rewarding. Yeah, I would also say there's a distinction in the, you know, air quotes, weird artists. Yeah. And that is the weird artists who are trying really hard to convince everybody around them that they're weird. And then there's the people who just sincerely are 
just on their own wavelength. Mm -hmm. And why I appreciate Kate Bush is I don't feel like any of it is phony or insincere. I feel like she, this is just who she is. Take it or leave it. And I can really appreciate that. Also, I hope that if you don't know who she is already, you'll give this episode a chance and appreciate her because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people may be turned off by this idea of like, oh, she's a little kooky or she's a little out there, but she has her fingerprint on the albums of so many artists to come after her Mm -hmm. that we would not have without Kate Bush. I don't know if you could really kind of put into a proper framework how influential she's been to so many artists, especially artists that we love that are a little bit more on the fringe and more artsy and where they're blending art and music into more performance-based stuff. It's more conceptual. Kate Bush is really kind of one of those stopping points that everybody points to Mm -hmm. and says, "This, this album or that album really changed the course of what I wanted to do. And it's kind of shocking. Some of them are obvious, when we talk about her influences or who she's influenced. And some of them are, I'm like, oh, weird. I wouldn't have thought them yeah. to be a Kate Bush fan. Like, I heard that Tupac Shakur was, like, a huge Kate Bush fan. Okay. They sampled a lot of hip-hop artists, like, sampled Kate Bush and stuff. And oh, I so see that, yeah. I think that's really fascinating. But then there's more obvious ones. Like, we mentioned Bjork, obviously, was a massive Kate Bush yeah. fan. So we'll talk about that as we go on. But to even kind of figure out who this person is and how she got to the level of kind of international fame that she did, we have to start at the beginning, like with everybody. Yes. And before we do, I just want to say, we keep, we'll probably both say weird. And when we say weird, we mean creative, not like has an earwax collection. I think (laughs) there, she might, I don't don't know. know. But I think there is a distinction to be made between like the person who is, Uh, strange in a way that makes you uncomfortable and a person who is creative in a way that makes you maybe uncomfortable yeah i would so okay anyway let's go into kate bush's early life she was born to a life of privilege like right off so her father was a medical doctor and her mother was a nurse do you think that this helped inform her kind of detachment from uh the rules like everybody else around her Yes, absolutely. As an art historian, we both have always joked like, oh, if only we had like some benefactor who would just support us while yeah. we pursued our <laughs> yeah. our little ways. Or if we were independently wealthy, I think my albums and my films would be much more eccentric because yeah. I wouldn't have to care about any of that. You don't have to answer to anybody. So she did come from, you know, a family where she had a doctor and a nurse as her parents. She grew up in East Wickham. Uh, in what is described as a farmhouse, but I don't know here. So I looked into where East Wickham was because in my <laughs> mind it was like on some like windswept plain, but it's it, within the boundaries of Greater London. Oh, it's not like Downton Abbey kind of farmhouse? Well, I don't know. <laughs> That's kind of what I imagine. I couldn't find like a picture of her house, but I suspect that the UK has a different idea of what constitutes a farmhouse. Yeah. My family owns a farmhouse in northern Montana, and I can tell you it's not anywhere near London <laughs> or anything. So while her parents worked in the medical field, it actually seems that the family was really, really well-rounded, which is something you find in intelligent people. Their brains are busy and active, and they're looking to expand. Like uh, my sister-in-law, she has a PhD in bioinformatics. Don't ask me about it. I don't get it. 
but she is like a painter. She's an active reader. She's very smart and she's just always searching for new inspiration. And I think that's what was happening in her family. So her brothers, Patty and John, were both artists and folk musicians. Yeah, and they have a reoccurring theme throughout her entire life. Oh, yeah. Her brothers are central to her whole career. Like, they're just alongside her the whole time. Yeah, they're, I think, a very close-knit family. They are a very close family. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Patty also, he has a a, a Wikipedia page basically is like (laughs) he's her brother but he's also a musician an artist and an instrument maker kate's dad played piano her mother was into uh irish dance her mom was irish yeah so she was really into it but it was like at an amateur level yeah so i guess the picture that i'm trying to paint here uh her brother also i forgot to say her brother john wrote poetry and he taught karate so they just seem like all they they're like uh, the royal tenenbaums in a way yeah <laughs> right that's, at least that's what i'm imagining uh the family was uh just really really cool they they're smart and kate was privileged beyond privileged she comes from a stable financial background which i think in this day and age we can all appreciate and just go like of all the places to start that's great and then her parents were encouraging her and she was nurtured in basically every pursuit that she looked looked towards yeah the thing that i've kind of picked up on in her early years was yes she she did come from some money but that her family sincerely were close like they loved each other and they were supportive it wasn't just that like cliche rich family no but she did have this kind of whimsical childhood yeah that seemed like everything was a little magical and anything was possible and she was very much encouraged to just take up anything that interested her and Mm -hmm. i I can't fault them for that like no way good for them that they're successful and they had money but i mentioned that because that was one of the criticisms going forward when she did find success was well she came from privilege so of course she got that and i'm like "Uh, i don't think I think that is downplaying the massive amount of work she put into her career. Yeah, and we'll get to that. But I would say yes, and we'll learn the privilege extends from here. However, that'll only get you so far. If you don't have anything to support a really good, like, launch pad, you're not going to go anywhere. Otherwise, you're going to put out the song Friday. Like, cool, your dad has money, but... Oh. <laughs> no, you know what I'm saying, though. Like, Look, Friday is iconic. Rebe- Rebecca Black's a queen. Right, but it's not quite Wuthering Heights. No, no. Okay, so when Kate was 11, she began to teach herself piano. And you actually mentioned the whimsicality of her childhood. She played organ in a barn behind her house, so... Can you just imagine a child playing organ in a barn? That's about the cutest thing ever. She played violin. She began to compose her own music and lyrics from a very young age. And she was also going to a Catholic girls' school, which I think kind of flavors her her future music and future work. And by the age of 16, her family had produced a demo tape with a bunch of her original compositions. So, again, very supportive. At age 16, they were doing that. They believed in her. But initially, she was rejected by all of the record labels that they submitted her demo to. Well, that demo was fished around by a friend of her brother Mm -hmm. who really believed in her music, too. And he was really trying to get people to hear what she had to offer. And just people were not 
They yeah. weren't biting. Yeah. Well, I mean, also, she's a child. Right. It's hard to be like, yeah, yeah, let's sign a child. Although, I guess Bjork was signed as a child. (laughs) (laughs) However, these family connections did get her demo into the hands of David Gilmore, the guitarist for Pink Floyd. And he liked what he heard, and he helped Kate to record and paid for the professional-sounding demo. Yeah, a little backstory. So he, at the time, this is coming out of Dark Side of the Moon, I think. So they're riding high. Like, they're yeah, doing very famous. well. They're at the peak right now. And he was looking to expand and try and find new artists. So this was just right place, right time. Absolutely. He came into her life, and he was like, what is with this super eccentric 16-year-old with yeah. all these crazy songs? Like, he could already hear something was there and he believed in her right away it's really interesting too because her brothers were also musicians and i kind of wonder what the dynamic was there i never read anything about it like if they were jealous that no they were supportive well i know but i wonder if in their hearts they're like we're musicians too why aren't we getting signed they were traditional musicians so they were super into like traditional music folk yeah and so i think that they just thought of her as as their fun younger sister so yeah, I don't I don't know. But anyway, David Gilmore got a hold of her her music, helped her produce it, and the producer actually of this Totes Profesh demo was named Andrew Powell, and he went on to to produce her first two albums. So yeah. all of this was kind of linked to Gilmore's initial help and financial backing. The engineer on that demo too was working with the Beatles and stuff before that. So this demo his name was jeff emmerich oh right yeah Yeah. this demo was not just a demo this was like high quality ready to go right out the gate can uh, you can you imagine i mean you're a musician you know the struggle uh while i truly adore kate's music her artistry it's hard to wrap your mind around the good fortune that she encountered at such a young age i mean she had a super super professional quality demo by industry, like, legends at age 16. Can you even imagine that? Yeah, to talk about how high quality this demo was, mm-hmm. uh, the song, The Boy with the Child in His Eyes, mm-hmm. was actually included on her first album later down the road. We'll talk yeah. about that, but that's how high quality this demo, quote unquote, was. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and her fancy new demo was sent to EMI, and she was signed And interestingly, the mood in the industry at the time uh, left labels searching for experimental musicians and performers. Can you even imagine? Kate had another golden stone thrown in her path with this opportunity because I can't even fathom another time in history where where record labels would be like, you know what? We want something experimental, something strange, something different than what sells. Because experimental was what was selling at the time. It's not like Kate knew what she was doing. She was still underage, still a child. But she just had all of this amazing good fortune fall in her path at a very young age. And she was signed on a retainer. I think this was largely because she was so young. So they were just kind of waiting for her to age into it. So they gave her a retainer of two years just based on her demo. And she was given a huge advance. And you know what she did with that advance? What? What any 16-year-old would do with a fat wad of cast. She blew it on mime training and interpretive (laughs) dance classes. 
did you come across this in your research that not only did she get this big advance, but she got a five five album deal from EMI on the spot. She did all right. That's insane if that's true. I don't know if that came later. I might be mixing factoids. I'm not but... entirely sure, so I cannot confirm nor deny. I heard it was huge. Yikes. But yeah, why not go get mime training? <laughs> she actually trained with Lindsay Kemp, who was a groundbreaking artist, and he actually staged and performed in Bowie's Ziggy Stardust concerts in London. So this isn't like she just found a mime on the street and was like, hey, can you train me? No, this is Bowie's mime teacher. And you know what? A uh, little side story. She actually was at Bowie's finals uh, Ziggy Stardust concert. Oh, I'm sure yeah. that's what influenced And this. of course, in true um, dramatic fashion said that she like cried for days thinking about it because of how like it changed her life didn't didn't our tour guide when we went to europe when we were like 18 see ziggy stardust yeah she snuck out of the house because she was like a young punk and um i mean this is pre-punk but she was in that whole scene Yeah, yeah but she had told us that story that she snuck out of her house and got to go see the ziggy stardust tour cool yeah also that mime Lindsay kemp He's a male, a male Lindsay. But I read that he had an affair with David Bowie. Well, I believe that. I mean, Absolutely. <laughs> time was right. His story, if you want to like take a little detour in your life, look into Lindsay Kemp's life. Fascinating, fascinating character. She also trained with Adam Darius, who was a mime and an author, who was described by the BBC as being one of the most exceptional artists of the 20th century. And I was like, I'm going to stick a pin in that and come back to him later. <laughs> so I just wrote down his name because I couldn't go down that rabbit hole right now. Um, but anyway, one thing or the other, I don't know what you were doing. Well, actually, I know what you were doing, but I don't know what you, the listener, were doing at age 16. But this is what Kate was doing. That is totally bonkers what was happening in her life yeah. at this time. And on top of that, she wrote somewhere between 100 and 200 demos for songs. Yeah, casually. she talks about this period in her life as being one of the best periods because she, here's the thing. This is what kind of bothered people right away was she had three years to basically wait around until she was going to get to record her first <laughs> to album. age in. Yeah, be, between holding, being given this advance. So in that three years, a normal artist who's like struggling to get by and make a living as an artist would have been on the road the whole time, honing in on their craft and playing every gig they could. She didn't need the money. So she didn't have to be on the road, which meant she spent all that time taking mime lessons and dance lessons and just writing, writing songs. And she just stockpiled. And so... This account of 100 to 200 is not a joke. Like, she really did. And everybody, the session musicians, and said she came with this, like, ridiculous amount of songs ready to go. The thing about that that I keep telling myself is, so she was, you know, 16 or so when she's writing these. The songs were not simple, like, three-chord pop songs. No. Kate Bush from day one was writing extremely complex, like, key signatures, time signatures especially, these really dense, weird songs. Imagine writing 200 weird songs and not like 200, boy, I love you, I want to hold your hand kind of songs. So that's what I think is striking in this whole story is by the time she's ready to go, she's put in the time and effort and she clearly has the talent to back it up. Absolutely. Another thing that really strikes me for this period of time is that 
most 16-year-olds are going to write about what relationships that they have, can't have, want to have, you know, because that's what teenagers think about. She was not doing that at all. She was taking her inspiration from outside sources, and it was a smart choice. Yeah, let's talk about, before we even get into her first album, who her influences were. I think a lot of people are very curious about that, because we hear her influence other people. Mm -hmm. You know, there's... We'll get to that later, but I was curious about who influenced Kate Bush Mm -hmm. because she got immediately linked to Joni Mitchell, of course, just because she was this kind of quirky singer-songwriter. Yeah, which she, it bothered her because she was saying, you know, they're just clumping us together and I like her music, but that's, we're not the same person. Very different. Her influences were a big one, which I can totally get behind, is early Elton John, amazing kind of (laughs) pop musician. Who she would later work with, but the the bigger ones that have a you can hear them right away when you know them are her vocal inspirations were Brian Ferry from Roxy Music, mm-hmm. and right out of the gate you can hear that with her first album. Yeah, but her big one, which we've already discussed several times, would have been David Bowie, and I think that that makes perfect sense because through the course of her career, it's very similar where it's all about multimedia art, dance, film, mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff coming together to be this complete interpretation of art versus just, hey, I am a pop musician and I write songs. So I think that that makes sense. And by 1977, it's go time. Like they've got the studio now, they're going to get in there. She did have a minor backup band at the time where she was doing like covers and stuff of, of other songs. She tried to get them to be the band on the album, but the record label was like, nope, we're bringing in all these fancy pros, including people from Cockney Rebel, like the drummer, you know, Mm -hmm. if you're into glam rock at all, and um, Alan Parsons Project, all that kind of stuff. So she had like a solid backing band. They sat down. She had all these songs to choose from. They start recording. And of course, it's going really well. And by all accounts, everybody involved in this very first album were like, they knew that they were making something that was either going to be a horrible flop, or was going to just kind of change everything. (laughs) And guess where it went. So she comes out with her lead single, which we all know is kind of one of her most famous songs, Wuthering Heights, which we can't play. I wanted to, but if just go look it up and listen to it because it's still to date. Just an absolutely brilliant song. That was not going to be the single. The record label had something else in mind. And this is right away why I'm mentioning this is um, from day one as a then 19 year old. She said, no, this is going to be the single. I believe in this song and it's this or nothing. Like if I can't make my career on this song, then I don't have a career. And so she really pushed for it. She won out and Wuthering Heights comes out as her very first single on November 4th, 1977. Age 19, keep in mind. Oh, can you... I can't even wrap my mind around that, though. Like, the the idea that the record label, like, bent to a 19-year-old's will after having given her so much money and so much time. And she also was uncompromising. That is a lot of confidence where I could easily read that or I could see how it it could be read as a negative but if you really contextualize it it's not it's not and it's it's who she is throughout her entire career is confident very confident in her ability she just knows what she needs to do and she's going to get it done so the single comes out 
And then there's a little bit of delay, but it's getting all this radio play and it's rising really quickly through the charts. And then her debut album, The Kick Inside, comes out on February 17th, 1978. And again, a teenager gets a number one hit with Wuthering Heights. The song, not only does it become a number one, it's the very first number one hit for a UK woman that has written her own song ever in history. So this is her very first introduction to the world of music. And it's about Wuthering Heights. A book she didn't even read, by the way. What? She no. saw the, the tail end of a TV performance of it and said, oh, that's an interesting concept and wrote the whole song around it. Oh, that that's brilliant me. to me. Wuthering Heights is so good. Go this comes it. out and she's already got a number one hit. First time this has happened. And it was all based on her confidence to say, this is going to be the song. And for there was a small group that said they knew this was going to happen. If it took off, it was going to really take off. But for the rest of the world, everybody was like, who is this person? Because What's going on? It's easy to accept some of this more eccentric music now in this day and age. But at that time in 78, she really was an enigma. Like it just didn't fit in with the scene at all to the point of this should not be a number one hit. And somehow it, it was. Uh-huh. And I love that, that that happened for her because she clearly put in the time. I mean, she had hundreds of songs to choose from and she put all her chips on this one and it worked out so good for her. Wow. She also, during this time, became the first female artist in history to have uh, a album that was written, every song was written by her, mm-hmm. sell a million copies. Woo-hoo. So she's already like breaking all these boundaries. And why I say that is because we're not normally like concerned about stats and record sales. She but breaks a lot. This of records. really raises the bar for what female artists can do in the late 70s mm-hmm. on a major level and not female artists using the kind of cliche like sexuality and stuff. She's very sensual, but not sexual in that way. She's using her ability to write her own music and breaking all these boundaries. And so I think that's what really a lot of people latched onto right away. And that was crucial for her from the beginning was to say, I write my own music. I'm not just, you know, this pretty face Mm -hmm. singing other people's songs. Well, and more than anything, like these, everybody's hearing this on the radio. So it has to just simply be a catchy tune. They don't see her until they hear the song enough that they go, I gotta go buy that album. So, because this is the 70s, they couldn't just look her up and be like, what does she look like? They had to go to the record store and get her record and see what she looks like or go buy a magazine or something to discover what she even looks like. So they had to be interested enough in the music to seek more information. Yeah. That did change, though, with Top of the Pops and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. So once they saw her, and we're not going to dwell on this, but if you know Kate Bush, 1978 Kate Bush, she's really pretty and she's very cool looking and she's kind of this total package. And one of the backlashes that happened, an early lesson in the music industry was they pushed that sexuality really quickly mm-hmm. and it really pissed her off. And she said... Everything had to revolve around her being introduced as being a writer, like as she's writing her own songs. Mm -hmm. And instead, already people are focusing in on her looks and stuff like that. So dumb. So this is a good opportunity going into the 80s before we even get there, because it's going to stick with her, of distinguishing Kate Bush compared to other pop musicians with 
sensuality versus sexuality. And that might seem a little in the weeds, but I do think it's really important when we're talking about the context of Kate Bush's career. So I listened to an interview with her and she talked about this and she was saying, you know, sexuality is what's going to come with Madonna, where it's just all about like playing up that image. Well, it's commodifying the, the body. Yeah. Sensuality for Kate Bush was more about being aware that she was a female and could have emotion put into her songs, but still had a a strength and control over her vision. Mm -hmm. It was just about embracing that she could have this side of her that was able to explore themes without just kind of being like dumbing it down to her looks. Yeah, I think that the key here is that sexuality is about just a body and sex, whereas sensuality can include sexuality but it's about an individual and their needs and their feelings and stuff like that yeah and i think that that was part of what kind of entranced a lot of people was Mm -hmm. she just was so again it goes back to confidence her image her music everything was like wow um who is this person again yeah and how is she able to already have this much control at such a young age where did she come from yes So with the success of her first album, the record company really pushed her to do a follow-up. And just nine months later, she had released a second album. I guess she already had a billion songs. Exactly. And that's what they mainly drew from that. Uh, Lionheart came out. It did have a couple good songs on it, like Wow's on there, which is a really fun song. Hammer Horror is the even better one. I love that song. But even she was really disappointed. She felt like it was rushed. She didn't have time to really consider it because Keep in mind, the previous album took three years to get yeah. ready. Uh, so it came out, it didn't, it kind of had mixed feelings. And to make matters worse, because now she's in the thick of a record deal, they said, you got to go out on tour, by the way. You know, we're paying for all this. Yeah. And so they pushed her into her very first big tour. Well, I'm sure she just like didn't put any effort into it and just got up on stage, right? <laughs> well, this will be the last thing we talk about in the 70s. And I'm sorry if this is going on a little longer, but she's just such a big, larger-than-life figure that it's fun to talk about. So in 1979, she kicked off the tour of life, which is, uh, for Kate Bush fans, um, one of two tours she ever did in her life. Spoiler so, alert. So far, she's definitely come to, coming to New Mexico to do a private show. <laughs> yeah, right. Private show for us. This show lasted six weeks, and it included music, dance, all these elaborate stages and lighting, 17 costume changes each night. That's like Reba level. It's totally Reba level. And she invented or is credited with being like the first significant pop musician to have the wireless, the head mic that attaches to her face. Kind of the nose could, Yeah, so she could run around and dance and stuff like that. Needless to say, without going into detail, nobody had seen anything like this. Like, the stage production was so insane, and it was really draining. Actually, by the end, uh, somebody had died on, like, uh, on tour and stuff like that. And it just took everything out of her. And I think this is when she realized, okay, I did the whole pop musician big tour. Mm -hmm. This is not where my interests lie at all. And that's what I like, that we can bookend the 70s with really Kate Bush trying out the music industry in in their way, the 80s is going to introduce Kate Bush in 
her way and it's never going to go back like it is going to be on her terms from here forward yeah she absolutely sets some boundaries and (laughs) those boundaries get more crystallized as the decades go on but in 1980 kate released never forever and it was her first album to include synth and drum machines she'd been introduced to the new technology while working with peter gabriel And Never Forever was her first album to reach number one in the UK charts. She was also the first British woman to do so. Yeah. So. (laughs) Again. The single Babushka reached number five. Uh, One of my all-time favorite songs of hers. Yeah, it's so good. And if you haven't seen the video, do yourself a favor because she goes from one side of being like this, you know, meek kind of character in front of a stand-up base to then wielding a sword and looking like red sonia and dancing around doing these crazy it's just everything about it is fantastic i have no corrections to make (laughs) i just love it so much in uh, 1982 she released her first self-produced album the dreaming this album is so important as she was afforded freedom because she self-produced. So she had a lot more wiggle room from here. And it's notable also for the extensive use. And when I say extensive, I mean it very oh, deeply. Yeah, for sure. Extensive use of the Fairlight CMI, which is which means computer musical instrument, which I think is so cute. Yeah, the Fairlight was a super important synth in the early 80s. And Peter Gabriel had introduced her to it because she'd gone over to work with him in the studio and saw it. And he was the very first person to ever own one. And then like Herbie Hancock got one and all these people started to get a hold of it. Mm-hmm. But she saw the possibilities, which was knowing Kate Bush, instead of getting a studio band to come in and her trying to say, I've got this crazy ideas because one of the things I love about her, and this is just musician to musician kind of thing, is most studio musicians said the time signatures made no sense. And for her, it all made perfect sense. Yeah. So what happened is the Fairlight gave her total creative control to mimic and sample these instruments and be able to construct these Mm -hmm. and then hand them over and say, here's what I was thinking. And so her vision is becoming way clearer and it's not being compromised now. Not being filtered through other people's ideas. And that can come, it's a double-edged sword. It's a babushka sword because the dreaming is split. I right down the middle. Yeah, Kate later described the album as in an interview with Q magazine saying this was my she's gone mad album. So, uh I think that's a safe assessment. The album started the charts at number 3 in the UK. It was also her first album to chart on the US uh Billboard 200. So it was big yeah. for her. Unfortunately, the album, as you said, it wasn't really accessible to the masses, and it remains one of her lowest grossing albums. Her influences were just, as a casual listener in the early 80s, imagine listening to music that was influenced by crime films, a documentary about the Vietnam War, indigenous Australians, and Houdini's death. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So it's not exactly like connecting with the everyman. No, she at all. didn't care at no, all. No, nor and should she. So the dreaming really divided people. This was her first, 
I mean, to a, to an extent, Lionheart, you know, it was a flop. But this one was the one where people were like, I don't know if I can continue down the path of Kate Bush for some. Yeah. And then for others, they were like, I think she's a genius. Yeah. And I would say the latter is for me, the dreaming, even though she had a much more successful album that's going to come right away. The Dreaming is still to date my favorite album because it's the one that I connect with the most. It's the most experimental. It's the most bizarre and out there. And I would challenge people like, if you want to know what Kate Bush is, put on The Dreaming. And if you can't get through it, then you don't deserve to listen to Kate Bush. If you get through it and go, oh, everything after that will make more sense. But I feel like this is this is the absolute like purest form in my opinion of of kate bush like it's the album is so experimental and it's so much fun and it's her just no rules no boundaries she's just going for it and that came at a cost for sure Mm -hmm. but also i don't think she cared about the cost she didn't at all and as the years have gone on it went from being this kind of like ooh, let's pretend that album didn't happen to being you know, held as one of the greatest albums of the 80s. And I think that that's really interesting. Yeah, I think that you can really see where many people would struggle to keep up the pace with Kate. Yeah. And also with her diversity. I just don't think it's maybe everybody's cup of tea. And that's perfectly fine. But it is really amazing. And if you just think about the state of the top 200 now, which I feel like blood's coming out of my ears just thinking about it cuz <laughs> our children are listening to like the top of the pops kind of stuff right now. It's uh it's mind-numbing. And to yeah. imagine in the top 200 finding a Kate Bush, oh, what a delicious oasis in the cacophony of garbage (laughs) oh and imagine that one being the number one you know that's what's really interesting too the dreaming it's you know keep in mind this is her you know that we're in the 80s now with kate bush this is pure kate bush and the dreaming i think is the moment when some people said wow we really enjoyed weathering heights and we enjoyed these other tracks but what are we listening to right now and when you start to get a little uncertain about the future of your artist, uh, decisions get made. One little crazy story I heard uh, was that because the dreaming had kind of divided people so much and it wasn't charting, it wasn't selling, it, it just was not working at all mm-hmm. in the minds of the masses. Whereas the small group of people were like, whoa, yeah. this is what we've been waiting for. It was so divided that... Kate Bush, at the time, being one of the biggest artists in the UK, was not invited to participate in Live Aid because, as the story goes, this album was so poorly received. They saw that as um, as a risk. Oh, that she was fading. Yeah, and so they didn't invite her to do this. And Ugh. she later said she would have done it, even though she wasn't touring. One thing, if you know about Kate Bush, is she's very devoted to her causes, and she is all about supporting and giving to charity and everything and this was something that she would have been 100% on board with they just didn't invite her she seems like a cool person she does seem like a cool person she just seems like she's got a vision don't get in the way but if you're in with that vision uh you're gonna go along for quite a wild ride yeah I mean we hang with loads of artists we're artists we know how it goes yeah I think if you just accept that and roll with it cool yeah. Anyway, we got to keep moving. Okay. But if you like the dreaming, uh, check out "Sat in Your Lap" is probably one of my favorite tracks from that album. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that's so so such a good album. But after that, 
She's making demos. What happens is she sees the production side of things like, oh, I've got control now mm-hmm. with this Fairlight. Screw the like time constraints and trying to book the studio and the cost of mm-hmm. that. I'm going to build my own studio. And this was huge. We've learned this time and time again with musicians. Like the moment they take that leap and say, I'm building a studio for myself is when <laughs> amazing things start to yes. happen. You know, like Nico Case, to not to get too contemporary, but going out in a barn and just setting up old pianos and recording because she didn't have to be on a studio's time produces incredible things. So I, you know where this is going is yeah. like, okay, now she's on her own time and she can really go back to where she's comfortable. Where Kate Bush thrives is being able to do things on her own time and not mm-hmm. feeling forced to put out something. So following the dreaming, she kept with the same kind of style, but she really just kind of honed in on it. It took a year to do this, all these demos to making them fully realized. Starting in 84, going into 85, we get the album that a lot of people kind of will equate to her masterpiece, which is Hounds of Love. And Hounds of Love really does deserve the credit it gets. It's also pretty brilliant because not only is the, the production great and the songs are great, but she does this kind of concept. She's going back to Peter Gabriel, by the way. I mean, like this is... Uh, one of her close friends and uh, somebody who she looks to a lot for inspiration and guidance, and you can hear it in her own music, is this more conceptual side. Keep in mind, Peter Gabriel came from Genesis, you know, pre-Phil Collins taking over the vocals. Genesis was very much this prog rock art house band. Mm -hmm. I love early Genesis. And so with Hounds of Love, she gets this concept to exploit the kind of vinyl record and cassette with a side A, side B, and says, well, how about side A are kind of all the radio-friendly tracks. Uh, this is similar to kind of low with Bowie. Yeah. And side B, instead of continuing, is going to be more of a mini concept album. And that's what she did. And so, she will continue to do that. Oh, it's so brilliant. And so what makes Hounds of Love so awesome is side one comes out and it's got all these... I mean, the songs you think of now with Kate Bush, it's got Running Up That Hill, which that was the song that broke her in America, finally. Like, that was the one that that did it. Cloud Busting, Hounds of Love, The Big Sky, those are all on side A. And then side B, she called The Ninth Wave, which was this whole conceptual album about a woman (laughs) lost at sea and stuff. And Just, like, drop that on the other side. (laughs) It's just great. It's so good. It's such a great album. And... This was her fir- her fifth album, by the way. So she's she's seasoned and she's still incredibly young. Mm-hmm. She's like twenty one. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But it comes out September sixteenth, nineteen eighty five. It goes on to go double platinum, and it becomes her second number one record. So, Hounds of Love. She's she's kind of put her stamp back out there mm-hmm. and says, "This is what I do, and this is what I do really well." And when you look back at the 80s albums, like most influential albums, this is going to be on that list. It's going to make every single list at some point. Yeah. One thing before we move on from Hounds of Love are the videos are really fun, but cloud busting in particular is one that stands out because it's based on this whole story that I want to get into because we don't have time. But it was directed by a longtime Monty Python collaborator, Julian Doyle, and then it was partially conceived between Kate Bush and... And one of our favorite Python alums, Terry Gilliam, 
which makes sense if you're a fan of Brazil or something like yeah. it make it totally looks like it. Absolutely. And it's just this whole weird contraption where they're looking at the sky and the clouds and all that. But it's notable because it stars Donald Sutherland. Who, and Kate Bush. Yeah, and Kate Bush as his son. Um, but <laughs> Donald Sutherland at the time was a huge actor and she was a massive fan. And uh, they asked him, his agent turned it down, and then she found a roundabout way to get back to him. And they hit it off and he said, sure, I'll take out a couple days for my schedule. Because he believed in it and it meant like the world to her that he was willing to do this. And so the video comes out and everybody was like, how in the world did she get Donald Sutherland to be in her music video? But it just kind of kept that going of like, she's just this, she's constantly thinking around everybody else and everybody's Mm -hmm. trying to keep up with what she's doing. Yeah. This same year of Hounds of Love, this is the year of Kate Bush, really, when you talk about the 80s, because not only did this come out, but talking about peter gabriel this is also the same year that she collaborated with him and had that massive hit uh don't give up mm-hmm. and then also they released the best of the whole story which was kind of all of her hits up to date so that all happened in one year no big deal so she's riding high and this is just the mid 80s wow but with kate bush she has to take her time and <laughs> she's gonna mm-hmm. slow way down and make sure that she gets back on track and doesn't rush after this i like that about her because as a person who feels constantly rushed by other people's time i appreciate that she was like no this is my life this is my time and i have to do it the way that i need to do it i absolutely i completely identify and why she stands out for me as a real inspiration as a musician she reminds me a lot of Brian Eno, too. They're just cut from the same cloth. And I look to them a lot for my own music and my own albums because I've put out albums for, you know, 20 years now. And the thing is that I have to do them on my own time also. Like, I'm working on a new album and it's taken, what, you know, 12, 13 years to get to that point. But it's the album that I want to make. And if that's how long it takes, that's how long it takes. Mm-hmm. Also, the not touring. Like, I'm the same way. Like, it, that's Brian Eno's the same way. Like, Touring doesn't, it's not appealing to that style of artwork. And so I get it. I get where she's coming from. She's clearly an introvert. So (laughs) I cannot see where they would think that would work for her. Yeah. But she took her time. And at the very, very end of the 80s, October 1989, she's really just squeezing at the very end. (laughs) She comes out with another huge record. Like the 80s were just big, big records for her. Mm Mm-hmm. The sensual world comes out, and this is a huge shift in sound. This is much more like intimate, private. uh, It's just, as the title suggests, more sensual. Mm -hmm. It's just a soft, very beautiful album. And I think for some, it's not what they were ready for because Hounds of Love is all these drum machines, these big, huge percussive sounds. And right before that, you've got all this experimentation and stuff. So... It's a shift, but I love that in just one decade alone, you have really distinctive albums. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't confuse the songs. If I put on a mix, I know exactly which album that song came from. Yeah. And I like that in an artist. I do not want me to, like, I question some artists that I love. I'm like, I don't, I don't know clue what album this came from. It's like Sparks. There is very distinctive lines. Oh yeah, I definitely know exactly which album it came from with them too. So that is the 80s for Kate Bush, that her biggest decade for sure, the one that she'll always be linked to. However, 
I know we're an 80s podcast, but you should be used to it by now, listeners, that when we start to get into people, we have to still talk about what they went on to do. Because she didn't just stop in 1989. No, and she's not done yet. But let's bring you from 1990 to present. So (laughs) I'm going to try and... No small task. We'll wrap it up. Power through this very quickly. In 1990, she released the box set called This Woman's Work. This included all of her albums up to this point, as well as two discs of singles and B-sides. And then in 1991, she released a cover of rocket man and of course (laughs) more on elton john later which reached number 12 on the uk charts and strangely number two in australia she's huge huge in australia i was listening to an interview with her and she said only in australia have fans been this insane where they were calling and pretending to be her record label to get rooms in the hotel she was staying in so that they could be next to and of course yeah because she's introverted like it was weirding her out but needless to say australia like really really loved kate bush can't i cannot blame them bush in the bush oh how about that okay and also i usually use people's last names uh when i talk about them but with kate bush i just felt better calling her Kate. kate okay that same year she starred in a film called lay dogs where she plays a bride named angela At a post-apocalyptic wedding. Hey. I haven't seen it. I really want to see it. Now I'm absolutely going to watch it. And then in 1993, she released The Red Shoes, which reached number 28 in the U.S. And it was her highest U.S. charting album to date. Speaking of The Red Shoes. Yes. I've got this week's fun fact. What? Okay, because <laughs> I'm just going to always find an angle to work this in. The Red Shoes <laughs> has a song on the album for, you know, people who are fans will already know this, but it's a cool backstory of a duet with none other than Prince. Oh. <laughs> so I have to take a moment and talk about it. Prince was a massive Kate Bush fan. Like, oh, yeah. Loved I her. Of that. course, that makes perfect sense. Not only because his all time biggest inspiration was Joni Mitchell and she already had that comparison right away but because she's just who she is he was drawn to her constantly and Mm -hmm. they never got to meet during the (gasps) 80s but they knew each other and they both admired each other and they wanted to meet but they just couldn't kind of like find the time but they kept up with each other's careers and there are all these like email correspondence too between engineers of Prince and Kate Bush and him like Prince gushing about her and saying like how incredible of a songwriter she is. So what happened was Kate unannounced showed up at one of his shows and said, I really want to finally meet him. And when he found out, he was like, yes, please. And they instantly hit it off. Like they were just both so into just imagine them like running into each other's arms. And me on a personal level, the thought of Prince and Kate Bush in one room together is like blowing my mind. But they met and... Of course, didn't waste any time to say, like, finally, we're, we're together. She said, will you do some backup vocals on a track I'm working on called Why Should I Love You? And he said, sure. So she, <laughs> that's all she asked for, by the way. But keep in mind, this is Prince. Prince, yes. So she sends him the track. And he instead cuts <laughs> the entire track up, rearranges it, mm-hmm. 
puts all these ridiculous layers of guitars and he's bass. He's got to show her what he's doing. Oh, yeah. He's not going to waste his moment He's got a peacock a little yeah, bit. It's totally. Prince. Yeah, he's like Mick Jagger walking around stage <laughs> right now. So he sends it back to her. And she's like, what? And so it's this huge collaboration. It kind of give and take. They take a, a little bit away. They add it. But what you get on that album is this really beautiful collaboration where they finally got to work together. Hmm. And they would go on to work together a little bit later in 96. The Emancipation album from Prince, which is really good, by the way. She does backups on my computer. But hmm. so, but this was their, their finally their moment to meet. And I thought that was a really cool story. That- oh, that's amazing. And actually, the album was very successful in the UK, too. It also went to uh, number two. The same year, she directed and starred in a short film called The Line, The Cross, and The Curve, which included songs from the album. And, you know, do with it what you will. She, I read a thing where she said there was about four good minutes in it. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I think that's being a little harsh on herself, but uh, it didn't really stick very well. But it was very ambitious, and I appreciate that. I do. I do, too. You can't win them all. No. It was around this time that Kate's longtime guitarist, Alan Murphy, whom she'd worked with since 79, died. And her mother, with whom she was very close, also passed away. So she had some emotional things happening. And she'd planned to take a year off after the release of The Red Shoes. But, you know, one year turned into 12. (laughs) Hey, hey, I totally get it. Yeah, and that's not to say she just sat around. She was working. She didn't release an album for more than a decade, but she was doing stuff. So I, I think it's important to say that like, the creative process isn't always like produce, produce, produce. Sometimes you have yeah. to take stuff and percolate on it for a little bit. Well, that's what I keep telling myself. <laughs> it's possible also that she was married to Dan McIntosh during this time, but that's not entirely clear. And that is according to the website... KateBushEncyclopedia.com. <laughs> she and Dan worked together musically, and they had a son, son together named Albert, who she calls Birdie. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> and then in 2005, she finally released her eighth studio album, Ariel. It entered the charts, and in my notes, I wrote charts. <laughs> no it's a good album it charted at number six and went on to be her third best-selling album in the uk which is crazy to think that it's 2005 now i think a lot of people just started to question like are we ever going to get another there were rumors like it's coming it's coming and then it wouldn't come so when it did happen i think she was probably surprised to find that her fans were just like right there they had nobody had left yet yeah, I think the diehard fans just had waited. Well, I mean, it did incredibly well. And the album is a two-disc set with separate themes. The theme for the first disc is known as A Sea of Honey, and it's seemingly <laughs> totally unrelated grouping of songs, which includes songs about Joan of Arc, her son, and her just singing out the digits of the number pi. I think to sure. the 117th digit is what I read. Well, keep in mind, this is coming from the history of an artist who sang about a washing machine, mm-hmm. uh, her menstrual cycle. I mean, she'll just, she'll sing Whatever. about whatever's on her mind. Yeah. <laughs> Why Vietnam. Not? I mean, like, cool. That sounds like a good idea. I'll sing about that. Absolutely. Why not? And the second disc is called A Sky of Honey, and it's a continuous piece that is about the passage of a day of 24 hours. 
I love that she took her time with this. Now, on you know, admittedly, I am an 80s Kate Bush fan. That's how I know mm-hmm. her music. But I, I'm not as familiar with her 90s and, and later stuff. But what I've listened to, I, I appreciate that she just took her time. And what yeah. finally came out was what she wanted to have come out. And it wasn't forced. Yeah, and it was well accepted. She was nominated for Best British Album and Best British Female Solo Artist. I don't believe she won either of them, but she was still nominated, which is a pretty big deal. And then in 2007, she wrote the song Lyra for the film adaptation of The Golden Compass. Oh, that's a good, that's a good movie. Eh. In 2011, she released the album Director's Cut, which included 12 reworked analog tracks from The Red Shoes and The Central World. So what she did is she made a lot of changes in instrumentation, lyrics, and vocals. Like, she lowered the vocals because as she aged, her voice has lowered. So she changed the vocals to suit her current vocal range. Yeah, the Director's Cut, if you haven't heard it, is actually really, really good. So it was a smart decision. Usually when people redo stuff, it's like, uh, maybe you should have left it alone. But technology had changed and her ability to produce had changed. Mm -hmm. And um, they are kind of stronger versions of the songs. Yeah. So after a 12-year break, she's real busy. In November of that same year, she released 50 Words for Snow, which included a duet with... Elton John. Oh, boy. Which tracks, obviously. And I kind of feel like there must be some sort of lair in which rich, eccentric British people meet (laughs) and either feast on the blood of the young or duet together. Yeah, for sure. Or at the same time. Maybe both. They duet together as they're feasting on the blood of the young. We've never been invited because we're from... We're not British. Yeah, we're from the US. (laughs) Anyway... (laughs) The album is, of course, experimental, and it was set against a backdrop of falling snow. It's <laughs> great. In general, the album was pretty well received by critics. And then she was given and rejected an opportunity to perform at the 2012 closing ceremony for the Summer Olympics. She's like, nah, bro. And they're <laughs> like, okay, well, um, we're still going to play a remix of Running Up That Hill. So they played that, even though she refused to go. That's not... A surprise. Yeah. I think at one point she was offered to go on Fleetwood Mac's tour for Rumors, like to open, and she said, no thanks. Yeah. I just, I like that about, she wasn't being rude about it. She was just like, it doesn't interest me. I don't want to do that. Think about how many things you have said yes to, and you're like, I don't want to, but sure. Can you imagine if you just said no and you got to like stay home in your pajamas, how great that would be? Yeah, but it's a fine line between saying yes to everything and opening opportunities and learning how to say no to things you just know in your heart are going to be a waste of your time. I agree. And I think she did that. Like she opened the doors that she thought would further her career in a way that she would would like to see it go. Uh, Then in big news in March of 2014, she announced plans for a 22 night residency in London at the Hammersmith Apollo. This was her first live concert announcement in actual decades. So she had finally agreed to do a live show. Over 30 years removed from her only other tour she had ever done, by the way. And tickets sold out in less than 15 minutes. 
All of them. Yes. That's For 22 nights. That's crazy. (laughs) Recordings from the concerts were released in 2016 under the the name of the concert series, Before the Dawn. The publicity from her shows boosted sales, and she became the first, again, female performer to have eight albums simultaneously charting in the UK Top 40. The only other artists male or female, to have achieved this kind of charting power were Elvis after his death and the Beatles. In 2018, she published a book of her lyrics called How to Be Invisible, and the same year she also released two box sets of remastered studio albums. So she is active again, but most recently, because COVID times, all I could find is that she signed an open letter to Boris Johnson asking the streaming companies to make equitable remuneration to artists so basically that they would get paid for streaming the same way they do for uh, uh radio play yeah, so that's what she did in 2021 according to what i could find <laughs> right. well it's been an interesting journey to see kind of where she's gone how she's navigated her path there's been a lot of highs and lows yes a lot of her on her own terms kind of walking out of the spotlight I mean, for good reason. She also raised a son during that time and was like, hey. Lived her life. Yeah, I've got other things going on and I'll come back when I feel like it. And guess what? When she came back, there was everybody ready to receive it. So must be nice. But I think that also it's been interesting to see all these people that she's influenced over the years. I mean, there's been some that are like really on the nose. Annoyingly, I one of my introductions into Kate Bush in a deeper level was because I'm a product of the 90s, I knew who Tori Amos was. And I would listen to her songs and be like, oh, she's kind of out there playing piano. And then everybody would always be like, yeah, she's just ripping off Kate Bush. So I always heard Kate Bush, Kate Bush. And then as a teenager, I finally like looked into Kate Bush and I was like, oh, it really is where she's getting that calling card for. But there were other artists, like we mentioned Bjork, who was continuously inspired by her mm-hmm. and would kind of dip from the same well, I would say. They're, they're kind of mm-hmm. going down that same path, but she would do it in a more sincere way. So one of the things I wanted to, to mention was the vocal arrangements that Kate Bush would do. So we talked about her brothers, and her brothers were really into world music, too. Mm-hmm. And she was listening to all these albums yeah. they had laying around. And she started listening to these Bulgarian throat singers. And we're like, whoa, what is this? This is incredible. Track down this trio. And that's where, on the sensual world, she linked up with them and to record several songs of these throat singers. And I couldn't help but think about Bjork with Medulla working with all these weird vocal like throat singers and stuff. And I I guess I can see the correlation there of like constantly pushing the boundaries of what is music. And again, with Bjork, like self-producing all your own music and taking matters into your own hands. Damn the consequences. Let's just kind of see what happens. And Mm -hmm. so I just I like seeing this thread that's happened throughout pop music where it's like a counterculture pop music in a way. Yeah, I agree with the Bjork influence. I thought of Bjork so much as I researched her. And many other artists, Bjork in particular, kept coming to mind. Well, it makes sense because of our generation. Yeah. Like, you know, we were raised in the 80s, but when we're coming to our own would be the early 90s. Mm-hmm. So we missed Kate Bush in her prime. Yeah. And we are those people that have to go back and find her in our teenage years and be like, who was yeah. this person? 
And I love that. I love that when you find out about really interesting eccentric artists, they don't work in a bubble, even though we want to believe they do. They're all building on other equally bizarre artists who are like thinking outside and going, well, this is what I'm doing. And somebody latches on and goes, I want to do that, too. But in my own way. And it just kind of keeps the decades going from artist to artist to artist. And I just I love that. All right. Well, if you like what you heard and you did because you're still listening. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, No, honestly, thanks for listening to this episode. I think this is really important. I think it's cool to expand your mind and learn about artists who were doing really interesting things and continue to. And it's not just a cool, weird uh, B-movie, but like... (laughs) Those are fun, too. Those are really fun, but we also have to talk about the things that inspire us. And so... Thank you for listening to The Life of Kate Bush. I hope that you've found something in this. Go listen to yeah, her. Yeah, just go listen to her music. It's really fun. And uh, if you don't like an album, try another one. That's yeah. what it's like. It's like how you mentioned Sparks. Like, yeah. you can't judge this kind of person on one album. Or Bowie. Like, you, you have to try a sampling plate of them. Something will fit. Just try them all Something on. Something will fit eventually. But uh, if you like what you heard, the best thing you can do to help us out is spread the word, rate, review, subscribe where you get your podcast. That's, Thanks to all of you who have yes, done that. Thank you so much. We're still going. We're keeping this going. And it's because of things like this, topics like this that keep us excited. The whole yeah. point of this podcast was that we wanted to just learn about things we've always liked but didn't quite know a lot about yep and man this is fun so thanks for going on the journey with us now we're all kate bush (laughs) semi-experts i wouldn't go that far so you can follow us on instagram at laser graves and like we said tell your friends tell your family tell Tell your your coworkers. yeah everybody who needs a little dose of cool yeah tell them they need a little laser graves in their life <laughs> All right. Well, until next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. We'll see you. Bye.